we can think sometimes too much in abstract terms about the big questions surrounding the civil war as opposed to actually looking at how it impacted uh, on, on some of the individuals involved. I'm Diana O'Connor. Welcome to the Dingle Lit Podcast. Diagwit agus fóta dan podcrail fela litirha gwerthigwina. Each year, at the end of November, Dingle Lit Book Festival brings together a unique weekend programme of events in English and Osgwelga on the Dingle Peninsula. Dermot Ferreter is one of Ireland's best-known historians and is Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD. In his new book, Between Two Hells, The Irish Civil War, he draws on completely new sources to show how it shaped the political landscape up to the present and how important it is to understanding life and politics in Ireland North and South today. Conor Brosnan interviewed him live at Dingle Lit in November 2021. Let's join them now. So, why did you write this book? I wasn't going to write it unless I had something new to say. Uh, I was conscious that there are fine books on the Civil War, none more so perhaps than Michael Hopkinson's one, which was published in 1988, uh, just before I started studying history in UCD. Uh, a very fine military history uh, of the conflict. Um, that was not what I was going to attempt to do. It's not the kind of history I write. Um, but what I did want to do was to reflect the great expansion in the amount of information on archival material we have about the Civil War and to give a sense, I suppose, of, of the mental bones beneath the physical flesh uh, and the fighting and what propelled it, but also the fractured afterlife. What happened to those who were involved, the men and women? Um, I was very conscious that we now have massive um, documentation, particularly as a result of the military service pension applications, which is a voluminous archive of nearly 300,000 files, which sheds an awful lot of light on the detritus uh, and the afterlives, um, not just in relation to how they fared, um, you know, in relation to housing and social conditions, but also their medical conditions. You know, it's, it's a, a very valuable archive of trauma. I think an awful lot of trauma arising out of the Civil War period was internalised, and I did want to explore that um, and to bring it back to the people who fought it. Um, we can think sometimes too much in abstract terms about the big questions surrounding the Civil War as opposed to actually looking at how it impacted uh, on, on some of the individuals involved. So rather than just focusing on the leaders and the household names, though they are important uh, and they make crucial uh, decisions um, that, that impact on people, I was particularly preoccupied with those who were the grassroots those who propelled the, the engines of the war. So that's why I wrote it. And I also think we have to confront very difficult questions almost 100 years on from the Civil War. Uh, what we did to each other and why and how and what did it mean at the time and what does it mean now? Was there any one emotion in you reading the archives? Sadness, the devastation the loss, the cruel lotteries that were in operation in relation to who survived and who didn't, uh, in relation to how they were going to negotiate if they survived uh, their post-Civil War lives. It's the dashing of the idealism, really, 
Uh, I'm often drawn towards literary sources for this period as well because they tend to encapsulate that sense of disillusionment. Um, none more so than perhaps Sean O'Casey, who, who even in the 1950s was looking back at the trilogy of plays that he wrote in the 1920s. And of course he was focused on the Dublin tenements um, and he suggested we need to be careful of personal idealism. You know, good intentioned and well-meaning as, as it may be, its flame in a few hearts may not give rise to new life and hope for the many, but dwindle into ghastly funeral pyres. Uh, those words were echoing for me as I went through a lot of the uh, personal experiences, that sense of, of dis disillusion. Uh, Sean O'Fallon also wrote about it waking, waking them up from the mesmerism of the romantic dream. There were a lot of people 100 years ago who were preoccupied with the idea of the Republic, um, not necessarily interrogating uh, what it might mean uh, in, in relation to the future. So it's the, it, it's the difficulty of coming to terms with the breaking of, of the dream. And for women, there are even more difficult experiences, I think, because they have so many difficulties to encounter and endure. And we're left with very striking and, again, very tragic images from the end of the Civil War for, for, for women, particularly on the, on the anti-treaty side, including Sheila Humphreys, who used a description of herself and her colleagues. Having come off hunger strike, the Civil War over, she said, we were flattened, we were beaten, we didn't think anybody remembered our sacrifices. And she said, the tinted trappings of our fight were hanging like rags about us. That's another line that stuck with me because it weaves its way through that, that image and that sense of great disappointment weaves its way through an awful lot of the trials relating to women in particular. I think there was a lot for us to discover there about the experiences of women because they did have those, those additional burdens to carry. And why were women written out of the story afterwards, um, in general treated poorly? The language that's used about them is extraordinary, and sometimes it's very violent. Um, there's a chapter in, in a book, a well-known book called The Victory of Sinn Féin by P.S. O'Hegarty, who was on the pro-treaty side. Uh, and that book was published in 1924, and he actually devoted a chapter called The Furies to the women. And it tells you an awful lot about the way in which they were characterized. But we also have sources, um, private sources and, and, and diaries. Um, Liam de Roeste, for example, who was a Sinn Féin TD for Cork, and pro-treaty. He kept a very detailed diary, which is in an archive in Cork. And the way he put it very explicitly in his diary is that these women are not normal beings with normal human mentalities. They are monomaniacs. And he said there is a moral sore in the soul of Ireland. And he deemed women to be primarily responsible for that moral ulcer. So the language is extraordinarily strong. It, it, it's violent. It's In some respects, it's misogynistic. And a lot of it has to do with the idea of coming out of a period of upheaval, it's time to put people back where they belong. Um, the ethos that develops is very antipathetic towards uh, assertive women. Um, and of course, the, you know, the church moves into a particular post-Civil War vacuum as well. The church has been scared by what happened during the Civil War. Uh, people weren't listening uh, to Catholic church leaders always the way they would have wished um, and they had a particular animus towards the women as well, particularly women like Mary McSweeney, who'd be a well-known um, anti-treaty Republican. Um, and it's a mixture of those different sentiments. I also think that women, and I remember Common Man 
uh, as an organization, were, were very trenchantly opposed to the treaty. The Republic and the attachment to the Republic is deeper for a lot of women. Uh, going back to 1916 and the promise of equality, that meant more for many women because of the additional mm -hmm. inequalities that they faced. So for them, particularly, the loss of the Republic or the betrayal of the Republic as they saw it, it, got, it, 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 it penetrates very deeply for them. But would it be reasonable to say as well, I think five out of the six um, female TDs had personal uh, losses, Kathleen Clark and, mm. and Mar McSweeney. Um, would that have informed their... their oh, of course their, it would. I mean, we have to be conscious of the keepers of the flame. Uh, Kathleen Clark, obviously, mm. uh, as the wife of Tom Clark. Mary McSweeney, as well as being a formidable um, campaigner and politician and orator. Uh, in her own right, is also the keeper of the flame of Terence, and she invokes his ghost. He died in hunger strike, of course, in Brixton Prison during the War of Independence. Um, so she's there to keep that flame. Mm. Um, and there are those who speak, obviously, during the treaty debates, including the women, on behalf of the dead. Mm. Um, the way Frank Gallagher put it, um, you know, this is about what the dead would have done and would have said. It's not just, you know, about us here. So yes, the women do that, but we also have to get beyond that. Um, that they're, you know, we need to look at them in the round. You know, mm -hmm. these are individuals who have complex backstories before they get to the treaty debates. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't just, they do vote as a block in the sense that the six women vote against the treaty. Right. Um, so we can't think about that. But they all have complex backstories. Um, many of them have experienced significant trauma. You know, we do need to think about those experiences. What was it like to watch your brother starve to death? You know, that horrific, painful death that was, was such a public uh, event and a public cause, uh, and yet the family suffering that went with that. Uh, that's what I mean about an awful lot of this being uh, internalized, but it can find expression uh, in vociferous uh, assertions and Mary McSweeney spoke against the treaty longer than anybody else uh, during the treaty debates. So they do draw on that well. It's the smithy in which a lot of their sentiments are forged, I suppose you could say. Um, but there's a lot of things going on. And I mean, I think this is part of the challenge is to allow them their own complexity. Um, there's a tendency to think about the Civil War um, in, in polarized terms. You know, we've often had labels around it, green against green, brother against brother, faith versus reason. I don't think any of those labels do justice to the myriad of feelings. And, 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 and emotions are very strong, um, obviously, during that period. Um, and we need to try and give them back that complexity. I remember years ago interviewing Richard Evans, um, a very distinguished Cambridge historian who was talking about the First World War and that generation. And he said, we need to stop lecturing the people on the past, of the past on how they should have done better. You know, we can, we can come at this from a very comfortable vantage point um, and, and strip out sometimes some of, of the emotional dilemmas. And this is deeply emotional history. I mean, you talked about what I was feeling going through uh, this material. You can't remain completely detached uh, from this period, from this kind of history. Um, because of, of, of the depth of the feeling. Yes. Just to go back to the, let's say, the time of the truce and the negotiations, because a lot of the, some of it, some of it, a lot of the trouble started at that time and the debates following it. Could you summarize that, let's say, six month period to the start of the Civil War? Well, I think there's a very revealing uh, correspondence between Jan Smuts, 
who was the Prime Minister of the South African Union, which is a dominion within the British Empire, and Eamon de Valera. Smuts had been part of the Imperial War Cabinet. He's kind of being drafted in to try and persuade de Valera that he has to abandon the idea of the Republic and accept some kind of a compromise. Uh, and he writes to him uh, in the summer of 1921, after the uh, ceasefire, and he says, to you, the Republic is the true expression of national self-determination, but it's not the only one. Um, and de Valera says, well, that's for the Irish people to decide. And Smuts tellingly responds, well, they won't let you decide that. Britain won't let you decide that. You are next door to them. And that really encapsulated the dilemma that was to haunt Sinn Féin in subsequent months. You go into treaty negotiations. Uh, a republic isn't on offer. Britain has a bottom line, and the bottom line is you're staying within empire or, or it's a return to war. Uh, we can discuss other issues uh, around that. Um, and what the Irish delegation came back with, of course, fell far short uh, of a republic, uh, though some felt that they had achieved a certain amount. Um, and this is the essence of the dilemma and the gestating civil war. What constitutes an acceptable uh, compromise? There are those who don't believe that any compromise uh, should be contemplated. Um, there are a lot of people who are wavering. There are people who are looking for leadership. The title of the book is taken from a Doyle contribution by PJ Maloney, who was a Tipperary Sinn Féin TD, who had spent 21 days on hunger strike during the War of Independence. He'd lost a son. Um, and he said, I'm not a statesman. I'm not an orator. I'm looking for guidance. I'm looking for the path, he said. I'm not going to inflict you with my views, but I cannot vote myself into empire. And think of that phrase, I cannot vote myself into empire. That's how he characterized it. But he's looking for guidance. And there are those who are wavering um, and are waiting to be persuaded uh, as to whether or not this is a compromise they can live with. Um, and you know, the, you know, the treaty debates are, are held over 13 separate days in the region of 100 TDs speak. There's 440,000 words of text in the treaty debates, and they're the words that matter if we're trying to understand the turmoil that people were experiencing. But what PJ Maloney ultimately said is that we are being maneuvered into a position where we have to choose between two hells. So that period from the ceasefire uh, right through to the early the following summer, um, that's the position that people have been maneuvered in. And they react in particular ways according to the lights that are guiding them. The lights that are guiding them, but were they guiding them or were they taking their cues from the, from, from the public, from their constituents? They went home well, for Christmas yeah. and that's, it's been stated. I think Christmas was important because there is a mobilisation, I think, uh, of, of those who have a vested interest in stability and in peace for very obvious reasons. Those who are involved in business, you know, uh, war is bad for business. Um, you know, those who are involved in commercial entities, uh, the Catholic Church, um, you know, doesn't just speak with one voice, but it's much more publicly pro-treaty. Um, to a certain extent, during the War of Independence, it had to be much more careful about its public right. uh, pronouncements. But there are a lot of uh, pri uh, priests and some bishops who are being very vocal in their support, and an influential priest, as you know, could go a long way in terms of persuading people. But then there's also the constituents. It's all very well for de Valera to stay in Dublin during the treaty negotiations and say to Arthur Griffith in London, well, if it has to be war and a resumption of war, the Irish people are ready for it. You know, now, on whose authority uh, did he say that? Uh, but when you consider 
those who had been killed during the War of Independence and the toll that it took on civilians, many have got used to peace now and to the absence of death uh, and violence. So there is pressure for constituents. People like Sean McEntee and Harry Boland, representing Monaghan and Roscommon, respectively, were quite open during the treaty debates that they were going against the will of their constituents. But they felt that uh, they had a duty not to be hypocritical, as they saw it. But also remember, these are not experienced debaters. There are some very valuable, interesting contributions during the uh, treaty debates. Uh, but this is not a doll that had met normally. Mm. You know, they, it was underground for a long time. You know, they only uh, met fleetingly. Um, so this is the first time they've gathered in that way to tease out these issues. Um, so when they go home, some of them at Christmas, they discover that there's quite a groundswell. And there's also the provincial newspapers. They're very much in favour of the treaty with a few uh, limited exceptions. So there's quite a head of steam building up um, behind the, the treaty cause. That doesn't mean everyone is happy with it, even those who are prepared to accept it or vote for it. Um, but they think they have to live with it if the alternative is war. And remember, there are many who are preoccupied with bread and butter issues. Um, 50 years after the treaty, the historian Leland Lyons was, was marking that anniversary. And he said, most people do not live their lives by the light of abstract dogma and theories. So for all the preoccupation with the oath of allegiance and fidelity uh, to the crown, many people felt those questions were quite abstract when they were more concerned about bread on the table. So the treaty is carried. What happened in April? Well, I mean, April is a very public defiance of the provisional government that's attempting to bed down um, this negotiate or this settlement. Um, the occupation of the four courts in April of 1922 uh, is an illustration of the inevitability of some form of conflict. It's all very well for us to focus on, on, on the devil errors and the colonists and, and, and the politicians. There were those like Liam Lynch who, as he puts it at one stage, believed that it was up to the soldiers to hew the way to freedom for politicians to follow. There's quite a degree of contempt on the part of some soldiers towards politicians, because the soldiers, many of them, see that they have brought the republic into being, and politicians don't have the right to take it away. So this is their, the register of their, um, their defiance. Um, and there were ominous noises uh, being made at that stage. There's ferocious pressure then from the British government. And let's not think about the Civil War just in Irish terms. There is a British shadow hanging over all of this. Winston Churchill, in a typical Churchillian bullying flourish, writes to Michael Collins in April and says, the provisional government must assert itself or perish and be replaced by some other form of control. Now, what does that mean? That means we'll be coming back if you don't deal with this. Now, we, we need to acknowledge that in the first six months of 1922, there are various attempts to broker a deal to bring the two sides together, including on the part of, of, of the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Lawrence O'Neill, and the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, Byrne. Um, the, a neutral IRA eventually emerges. There are those in between. I give the example of the GPO garrison in 1916. There were 572 people in that garrison, not 50,000, uh, as, as many later came to believe. Um, 572, 41% of them were neutral during the Civil War. So we do need to think you know, about those during those six months who are deciding, this is not worth war. Um, I want to go back. I need to make the transition. Um, for, you know, some people have jobs mm -hmm. to go back to. Of course, some, some don't. So it's a, it, it's a difficult period for men and women. 
Um, but there are, you know, those various attempts. Uh, but by June, particularly with the assassination of, of Henry Wilson, yeah. Uh, in an audacious killing on his doorstep in London, who's a hate figure uh, for Irish Republicans. Um, that seems to have been quite a freelance uh, operation by two British Army veterans um, who were involved in the IRA uh, in London, and it caused shock and outrage. And that is the turning point in relation to Britain deciding we cannot tolerate this any longer. We will put what you need at your disposal uh, in order um, to bring that occupation to an end. And of course, that marks the beginning. And that, as you said, there was a shelling of the four courts, and then things happened quickly in Dublin? They do. I mean, it's a short war. Uh, I mean, I remember Hopkinson writing about this in 1988. He said it was a difficult war to describe because it had an ill-defined beginning and an ill-defined end and chaos in between. It's highly regionalized. You know, when you consider both sides of the Civil War, they're not evenly matched. You know, by the end of the Civil War, the National Army has bloated to almost 55,000 soldiers. Uh, there aren't more than 11 or 12,000 uh, active in the IRA. Of course, there's, there are a lot of active uh, women in common Man as well, but they can't match the resources uh, of, of the National Army side. Uh, they don't have the popular support to sustain long-term guerrilla campaigns, so it is a short war. They're pushed back. You know, you can see Dublin, um, you know, the conflict in Dublin ends very quickly, and again, civil civilians are feeling the brunt of the conflict. Um, and then it's about, really, the retreat to the Munster heartlands, the so-called Munster Republic, Tipperary, Limerick, Cork, and then, of course, Kerry, um, and it's sustained in Kerry. Uh, for a long time into the spring of 1923. That's the kind of military course of it. There were audacious moves by the um, National Army side to take Cork um, from the seaside, yeah. but, you know, using that, Emmett Dalton involved in that, uh, seaborne landings. Um, so they do have the resources to do that, and they do have discrete assistance from, from the British Navy as well. Uh, so it's not an equal military contest, but it's very difficult uh, to get rid, to rout the Republicans. Uh, during it, of course, vengeance, the lust for revenge becomes very, very strong. And this is where psychologically it becomes uh, very difficult and very tricky. Um, and, you know, the level of hatred and venom that becomes a part of this conflict is, is striking. Now, we also have to put this in perspective. The Irish Civil War is not remotely as bloody as many other conflicts that were taking place um, in Europe at that time. This is the Irish version of what is an international phenomenon. What Winston Churchill famously referred to as the Wars of the Pygmies. There are four million people killed in those conflicts after the end of the First World War because of disputed boundaries, because of ethnic and sectarian tensions, because of the attempt to forge new nations out of the wreckage and, uh, of, of empires and the decline of empires. So, you know, we have to put it in that you know, when you look at what was happening in Finland, a country of a similar size and population in 1918, it's civil war, 36,000 people killed. You know, in Ireland, less than 1,500. That didn't mean, it's, and it's not just a body count, you know, I accept that. It didn't mean um, um, that you could dismiss what was happening in Ireland. Uh, but in terms of the scale of it, Ireland is not part of the same zone of violence as other parts of Europe are that have been particularly impacted by, say, defeat in the uh, First World War. So desperate things were done, and there are incidents of particular savagery, but they're not on the scale that was being experienced in other parts of Europe.
the Dáil didn't meet, or the, the, the Divisional Government, Parliament didn't meet very often. Was there any role, and I'm thinking of the Labour Party and Thomas Johnson, did he, what, what role did he have? Thomas Johnson, in some respects, was the political conscience keeper, in that he is providing some semblance of opposition. Uh, not in the sense that, uh, of, of opposing the treaty, yeah. but calling the government to account, particularly when it comes to the executions. Mm. And this is where it gets very serious, particularly after the killing of, of, of Michael Collins, um, where once you start executing people, you can go on executing people. It's making that first leap, making that decision. Uh, there were ultimately 83 people killed during the Civil War. We often hear the figure 77 cited. Um, there were two who were uh, shot uh, as a result of involved in armed robbery, and there were, there were four others who were summarily executed before the legislation comes into effect, the Public Safety Act. Um, so ultimately, there's 83. Um, and Thomas Johnson was concerned that there was no pretense towards legality. You know, you have strangled this state at, at its birth, is the way he put it. Um, so he does provide, uh, along with his colleagues, some effort and attempt to try and bring the government uh, to account or, 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 or for it to explain mm -hmm. uh, what is going on. Um, and, you know, the Labour Party did well in the June 1922 general election. I mean, obviously, pro-treaty candidates do, uh, do better. Um, and there's a very substantial block of votes for Labour, independents, and farmers candidates in 1922. It brings me back to the bread and butter argument. Mm -hmm. The Labour Party had 17 TDs elected. They can't sustain that, however, during the Civil War because things become more polarised. Yeah. And in a sense, they're squeezed out. Uh, there isn't um, enough oxygen for that labor element to breathe. Um, but I think it's very important when you look in the 1920s in particular, because anti-treaty Republicans were abstaining uh, from Parliament, that the Labour Party plays that very important role in, in, in sustaining uh, at least some semblance of a functioning uh, democracy, even though normal government business in many respects uh, is suspended. Yes. Back to the executions, which I mentioned, which escalated. Can you give us some examples of, um, of that and how it, it just became so terrible so quickly? Well, I often think of the families of those who were executed. Uh, I mean, there were very high-profile executions, obviously. Uh, Erskine Childers, uh, who was detested by the pro-treaty side. He was regarded as, as, as the eyes and ears of de Valera and, and, and an arch-propagandist for the anti-treaty side. And he was a convert, of course had been a pillar of the British establishment, a very interesting character, a very noble character in many respects. He shook the hands of those who were about to execute, them, execute him. He shared cigarettes with them. Um, he got his teenage son, Erskine Jr., to promise that he would not harbor hatred against those about to kill his father. Um, and Erskine Jr. was true to that. Uh, there, are, there is nobility and humanity in the midst of this. And yet, when you see the telegrams that were sent to working class families, informing them that their sons had been executed that morning. It brings home to you how traumatic this must have been. There are no goodbyes, there are no chats, um, and there's no resolution, and people had to carry that. Um, and of course, this is an era of censorship as well, because you know, the, 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 like any conflict, there's a, there's a deep propaganda war going on. Um, so it's very, very difficult to people to find out exactly what is going on. So, you know, th there are all sorts of cruelties that abound, but there's a particularly chilling assertion by W.T. Cosgrave, of course, who comes into uh, his own in many respects after the death of Collins, when um, he 
insisted that if he had to execute 10,000 Republicans in order for the state to survive, he would. And there's no reason to believe that he wouldn't have kept that going. Um, but thankfully, in that sense, the Irish Civil War was short. He, but he also says that the people aren't complaining. No. And, and was I, he right? I mean, well, this is the other issue about how do people find expression uh, during a period of upheaval like that? You know, uh, they're not permitted uh, uh, to gather uh, in protest. The government has such resources at its disposal, uh, including a special inf infantry corps, uh, in order to try and suppress dissent. You know, and the definition of subversion becomes very wide. And again, this is understandable from the point of view of, of, of Kevin O'Higgins. O'Higgins and his colleagues, as they see it, uh, they are duty-bound to suppress dissent because the survival of the state is at stake. Um, and, you know, and that strong attachment to the righteousness uh, of their cause, uh, that exists on both sides. I mean, I remember looking um, towards the end of his life and listening to a very elderly Liam Cosgrave, the son of W.T. Cosgrave, who became Taoiseach in the 1970s, stoutly defending the policies of his father's government. It had to be done. Uh, that was how they viewed it. Uh, there were many who agreed with them. There are others who just want the whole business uh, to be over. Uh, and you've got to be cognizant of what they had been through, you know, in, in, in previous years, you know. Uh, so, uh, in, you know, in, in, in many respects, the um, environment is very difficult to mobilize any kind of coherent opposition because, you know, a lot of the forces opposed to the state are, are, are scattered. Uh, they're being decisively uh, beaten in, in, in military terms, though, though, though there are, of course, pockets of resistance. It's very difficult to sustain uh, a coherent protest, which is one of the reasons why they resort to hunger strike. And we've also got to think about hunger strikes, because it's not just about the uh, high-profile uh, martyrdom that we associate with, with those who ultimately succumb there were men and women who endured hunger strikes, 20, 30, in some cases, 41 days on hunger strike. That had a long-lasting, life-changing impact on them in terms of their mental and physical health, including the women, because so many more women were incarcerated during the Civil War than had been during the War of Independence. And many of those women uh, go on hunger strike, and they're carrying the after effects. We can trace this through the, the pensions as well. Um, you don't recover from that. Uh, and looking at Ernie O'Malley's Civil War letters, his correspondence yeah. after 41 days on hunger strike, he believed that the country hadn't had sufficient suffering and sacrifice, that the Republicans had lost their soul. He was disgusted that the hunger strike was called off after 41 days. But that is also, you could argue, an act of desperation. Uh, and trying to coordinate a mass hunger strike, because there are nearly 12,000 anti-treaty Republicans interned uh, towards the end of the Civil War. But for some of them, can't. It was the safest place to be. But how representative was Ernie O'Malley at that point? He wasn't. Ernie O'Malley, one of the reasons why he says that is because he doesn't think his colleagues are sufficiently robust when it comes to their Republican faith. He's top of the faith class. And you can see his correspondence with Molly Childers, who is the widow uh, of Erskine, um, who plays a kind of maternal role uh, for Ernie. Um, and she indulges him, and we've got to consider how young he was and the turmoil that he's going through uh, mentally. But I also think of Peter McCartney, who was the Leitrim soldier who was killed when Ernie was captured uh, in, in Dublin, because he was from a family of nine on a very poor farm in Leitrim. His father got £40 of a gratuity for the death of his son. 
And Ernie O'Malley got a military service pension at a later stage of £258, which was a substantial sum then. It was hard earned, but it just reminds you of the lottery and of the, the, the vastly different experiences, because Ernie O'Malley went on to hone uh, a record of his time in the IRA that was unique. Uh, he was very gifted, but he went into himself, as did Frank O'Connor. Frank O'Connor, who became such an established writer, was also uh, interned, and he got tired, as he said it, of the mythical abstractions. You know, he said at one stage, I rarely thought, I felt. But then for him, life was becoming, as he put it, a tedious morality play. He couldn't deal with the depth uh, of, of, of that conviction as a way to live, you know. And again, we have to bring it back to them. We have to understand uh, what drove them. Um, and it's not about a kind of a balance sheet uh, when, you know, when assessing uh, both sides. Uh, you know, and Sean Lamas, of course, at a much later stage when he was at the end of his life, did sum it up in that way. Both sides did terrible things uh, and both sides knew it. And Lamas is, as a personal figure, um, what he went through when you talk about suffering and his, his brother. Can you tell us about his... Well, no, his brother, uh, his brother w was savagely mutilated and killed in a revenge killing in the Dublin mountains after the end of the Civil War. The ceasefire that ends the Civil War doesn't cease all violence. It kind of dribbles away. Um, and he's a victim of that. Sean never spoke about it. And the other comment he made after he had said both sides did terrible things is, I'd rather not speak about it. And he didn't speak about it. And it's interesting to look, even at Stephen Fuller, who miraculously survived the Ballyseedy massacre uh, in Kerry in the spring of 1923. He was elected a Fianna Fáil TD, but he was not going to become a poster boy for the anti-treaty side or for the Civil War. He never spoke about it. He gave one interview towards the end of his life, uh, but it was not something that he wanted to talk about publicly. And that is an important part of this story, the silence. And it wasn't necessarily ignoble. There are sound reasons for mm -hmm. silence when it comes to trauma and not wanting to reopen divisions and um, provoke old enmities. Um, but that silence also affected generations that came afterwards. Indeed. Who sometimes were existing on scraps of information about what perhaps their parents, their mothers and fathers might have been involved with. How would you characterize um, discipline and organization and professionalism of the, of the National Army? Desperate. Um, it's a serious problem. Discipline is a problem on both sides and it's understandable in some respects because they're trying to get a new uh, army up and running. Um, they're desperate for recruits at the outset. People are mobilized to join the National Army for a variety of different reasons. Not all of them ideological or relating to the treaties. Some of them are for financial reasons. This is also always the case with military service. Some people are drawn towards the excitement or it's just a job. Mm -hmm. um, and there are serious problems with discipline uh, on both sides. What struck me is the frequency with which the accusation of the new black and tans mm -hmm. is made. Both sides are referred to as the new black and tans, that they were prepared to do things right. that they would have denounced the black and tans were doing. Um, and there is drunkenness, there is indiscipline. Um, you can see this in the, in the National Army reports and in, in Owen O'Duffy's reports when he takes charge. Um, and you can see in, in some of the uh, correspondence on the anti-treaty side, the difficulty of, of, of trying to uh, coordinate a centralized approach or the, or the difficulty of trying to keep control of what's going on in different parts of the country because there are local dynamics at work. Which brings me to Kerry. What happened in February, March 23? The horrors of Kerry. Um, 
This is about the end phase. And Paddy O'Daly, who takes responsibility uh, for the command in Kerry, who was a former uh, Dublin guard, uh, who famously said he wasn't taking his kid gloves to Kerry, um, he is determined to bring this to an end by whatever means necessary. Um, and there are also reactions to the attempts to lure soldiers into traps. You know, what happened in Knocknagoshal, for example, uh, where National Army soldiers were lured into a trap. Uh, horrific carnage. Um, and there is the survivor, Joe O'Brien, of course, who lost both of his legs. And you can trace what happened to him afterwards through his pension files. Um, and, and the other victims of Knocknagoshal. And then the nine prisoners that are taken out of Tralee prison, uh, who are tied to a mine, who are called Irish bastards and told to smoke their last smoke and say their last prayer, the mine is detonated. The birds were eating the flesh off the trees in Ballyseedy, the famous line of Dorothy McArdle in her pamphlet, The Tragedies of Kerry, and she was active on the Republican side uh, as a propagandist, uh, close to de Valera, of course. Um, you can only imagine the trauma. What I found interesting was tracing what happened to the families of those young men and their backgrounds. And take Bally Seedy, for example. You know, uh, if you look at Paddy O'Daly, his portrait ended up in the Hugh Lane Gallery. He got a military service pension of 280 pounds a year. Have a look at some of the victims uh, of, of, of Bally Seedy. These are laboring people from very humble backgrounds. They leave traumatized families, but they're often also the breadwinners. You know, workers from Kerry County Council, road workers, uh, for example. Um, and you can see, because you can trace their experiences down through the decades, because these pension files can last the whole life of the applicant. In this case, the bereaved are those who've been left behind. Some of them are getting gratuities, not pensions. They're getting gratuities of 40 or 50 pounds for the loss of their breadwinner, never mind the loss of their loved one. And take Knocknagoshal, um, Edward Stapleton, who was killed in Knocknagoshal. The files take you from Kerry to a tenement in Dublin. He was a foreman in Easton's bookseller. And he left a widow and his widowed mother and two small children uh, in a tenement in Gloucester Street. Again, struggling to survive. And then further tragedy because one of his young sons dies a couple of years later and the Department uh, of Finance made sure to recoup an overpayment for the month after he died of one pound 17 shillings and six pence because there has been that overpayment. So you can see instances of bureaucratic uh, cruelty as well. That for me is what's interesting about Kerry. It's not just what happens as a result of these atrocities, you know, where they are and what that means here, what it means in Kerry, what it means locally. It's how it reverberates. Because you had an awful lot of people who were volunteering or, or, or joining up uh, for service uh, who are being you know, placed in these situations in, in very remote locations. Um, but the story brings you back from whence they came. So the, the, the Civil War uh, faded slowly, ceasefire, Lynch is killed, uh, de Valera issues a statement. What happened, then we had Fine Gael, or Cumann Gael in, in power. But just as kind of a wild question, did Fianna Fáil really win the Civil War? No. No one wins Civil Wars. Did they do well out of the Civil War in the long Todd, run? Todd Andrews summed that up very well, because Todd Andrews was a, a, a teenage anti-treaty Republican, ended up uh, imprisoned at that time. Um, and 
and he and his family were not happy about that at all. But that's what he wrote eventually, alas, there are no victors in civil war. Um, and you don't celebrate civil war. And you know, neither side could celebrate civil war. The deep irony, of course, is that ultimately de Valera, who you'll notice we've mentioned very little, uh, the way he put it was that he was observing the civil war as though behind a pane of glass, powerless to intervene, describing himself as a humble soldier. Well, there was nothing ever humble about de Valera. So there are many self-serving words that are used as well. But he was caught because he's not an incorruptible green as far as some of the more militant mm -hmm. anti-treatyites are. But his alternative to the treaty is not acceptable to the pro-treaty or to the British side. So he's kind of stuck. Uh, and yet he ultimately ends up vindicating the assertion of Michael Collins that this could be the basis of where he ultimately wanted to get to. But that's the irony. The man they could not forgive. One of the first scholarly articles I read about this is by Marianne uh, Valiulis in the 1980s, and that was the title of it. The man they could not forgive. Can you imagine them watching that long whore come in in 1927? The Civil War is only open a couple, over a couple of years, and there he is, and within another couple of years, he's in power. He's in power, and he stays in power. And he remained preoccupied with this period. He kept coming back to it, even as an old man, nearly blind as president of Ireland. He's corresponding with Frank Packenham in the 1960s, telling him the reasons why I didn't go to London to the treaty negotiations were overwhelming. You know, there he is in his 80s. He's coming back to it. He knows that he's vulnerable when it comes to the verdict of, of, of history. And yet, you can also see him towards the end of the Civil War, and he expresses it in a letter, I need to guide these men back into politics. You know, final victory needs to rest for the moment. Um, and he puts a lot of thought into how he'll recover and never lose control again. Um, but that, of course, does, it does propel an awful lot of, of political animus. You can understand uh, that. And yet, we have to remind ourselves that uh, not every Dáil debate from 1923 mm. or 1927 onwards was about the Civil War, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, there were younger politicians in the 1940s who were shocked by the level of vitriol. Noel Brown, Minister for Health on his yeah, first day yeah. uh, in 1948, uh, and he's hearing shouts of Bally CD in 77, and he described it as the white hot hate uh, of the Civil War. Um, and there were, and Lamas wrote about this, that you, there were Fianna Fáil members, as he saw it, who would climb to the top of the flagpole, as he put it. Chaunty O'Kelly, uh, he gave as an example. Others prepared not to engage uh, in those. But that question was always going uh, to linger. Uh, was it worth a civil war? You know, what becomes an empty formula by 1927? Had that been worth a civil war? And was that what the civil war was about in the first place? You know, those questions were always uh, going to linger. That was Dermot Ferreter in conversation with Conor Brosnan as part of the Dingle Lit Book Festival in November 2021. You've been listening to the Dingle Lit podcast. If you want to hear more, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch the interview online, look for Dingle Lit on YouTube, or go to dinglelit.ie for more information on upcoming events. Thanks for listening.